Welcome to the Pace and Freedom with your host, James Pace, where ideas and voices are valued. No labels, no judgment, just conversation. Thank you for coming back and to continue listening to this amazing conversation with our future president of the United States, Ms. Kim Ruff. But before we continue, there's some announcements that I need to make. So this is actually going to be the season finale of season one of Pace and Freedom. And I wanted to do something different. As you all know, I wanted to try to get all past guests or most past guests onto an episode and have an amazing conversation. But unfortunately, because of time constraints and uh, people's different schedules and my schedule being all messed up, I will not be able to do that season finale. So I thought this second part of the conversation with Kim was a perfect season finale for this season. And then in January, I will be back and we will continue with season two of Pace and Freedom podcast. And I think for the season premiere, I'm going to make that attempt again to get past guests from season one and reamp season two and continue with the amazing conversations that I have had with amazing guests. Exciting stuff. While I'm on this small little break as we transition to season two in January, I would recommend that you go onto Twitter if you have a Twitter account. Follow me on at Pace and Freedom because I will be doing some live Periscope videos with my trip coming up. I will be in Mexico City and I want you guys to watch some footage that I will have coming up. I think that it would be pretty cool and very exciting. And it will be around Thanksgiving time. So just stay tuned and you will get notification on when I'll be live and what is coming up. So let's get into the pre-roll and then continue our conversation with our future president of the United States, Kim Ruff. Hey, James, what you got there? Oh, just CBD gummy bears. Gummy bears with CBD, you mean? How do they smell? Just like candy, but with just CBD. Here, let me smell them. Oh, they do smell like candy. Yeah, it's my daily supplement that helps me with creativity and helps me focus on my conversations with guests and listeners. Check it out. JustCBDStore.com and check out all of their amazing products. All right, I'm pulling it up right now. Just make sure to use my 20% off discount code, PIF. I like that. Um, And I agree. It could be a little scary for newcomers to come in. I mean, you see it with any aspect of society, right? Even in a small town, for example, when you get the the new person from the city or something into into the small town, you kind of... Yeah, you're not from around these here parts, are (laughs) you? You know... (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I, I re- kind of remember that because I didn't grow up in the United States. I grew up in, in Spain, actually. And it was kind of funny because I, I did kind of see that my dad kind of f- felt that way. My dad being an American and we moved to a very small town in Spain. It wasn't like we moved to Madrid or to Barcelona. No, we moved to this farm town. Right. And here comes this American 
and establishes a computer company in the middle of a farm town. <laughs> like, hmm, what are you doing here? You know, uh, we don't we don't understand this. We don't we don't use computers <laughs> for farming. Oh no, get, they didn't the play Farmville. Out, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> no. Well, maybe later. You know, but it was. It was kind of actually funny because, you know, a lot of kids that I went to school with didn't really know what a computer was or how to use a computer. And here comes this, you know, my dad established his company and managed to get computers into this local school. And like, you know, it was a good thing. Uh, And eventually people appreciated it a lot more. But it just, like you said, it takes time and it takes patience to accept new people and accept ideas that we could use for the libertarian movement. For me, it's concerning because, you know, I remember even before I fully became a libertarian, I remember, you know, when YouTube had just came out, I remember seeing some of these YouTubers that were excited about Ron Paul and were talking about the libertarian movement. And these YouTubers were newcomers to the libertarian movement. They weren't libertarian up until our you know, wanted anything to do with the Libertarian Party up until Ron Paul. And I see these YouTubers now, and they're now supporting Democrats, socialist Democrats. How, like, far could you actually get yeah, right? to be a Libertarian They're like, if you're not going to end the Federal Reserve, then you know? I'm going to vote for more free stuff. <laughs> but they got to that point, right? That's because true. They felt yeah, that's rejected, very, that's very true. Um, you know? You know, one of the the degrees that I hold, and not to make it sound like I'm all fancy, they're they're two bachelor degrees, but one of them is communications. And <laughs> one of the things they talk about is if you plot ideas out on a line, you know, assuming that anchoring it on either side are the two extreme points of view. So say you're talking about the war on drugs, you're going to have somebody on the extreme point of view who's like, we need to legalize all drugs. That's us. And then you have people on the opposite side who are like, not only should all drugs be illegal, but we should also include acetaminophen and everybody should have a mandatory minimum sentence of 50 years and the death penalty or something just ridiculous. And then in the middle is just the somewhere in between semi-neutral view. Most people are kind of scattered around on that line, clustered toward that neutral point. When you're talking to them and you hit them with that extreme point of view and you do it in such a way that is basically telling them you're wrong, you're stupid, you're bad because you don't believe this. It doesn't encourage them, like yelling at them or arguing with them, doesn't encourage them towards your point of view. What it does is actually pushes them in the opposite direction. There's almost this innate contrarianness that encourages people to go in the exact opposite direction just because they feel like they're not being listened to. So really, even though we are very much of the mindset as sort of left brain rational thinkers in this movement that it just makes rational or logical sense to think these things because it's very algorithmic. Most people are motivated by emotion. And if they don't feel like their emotions are respected or they are as an individual respected, it doesn't matter if you stand on the ideological high ground, they're going to go in the exact opposite direction strictly out of spite. It seems like that's what happened. And it's, it is a little concerning for me. I think that, you know, we need to do a better job in accepting people. I don't, uh, I've had Steffi Cole on my podcast 
and we talked a little bit about that where she felt kind of rejected by the libertarian party and now luckily she didn't go full social mercy so uh, (laughs) but she is i know right but i mean she's still a small l and she she's independent as far as party affiliation which is good because that gives you a little bit more i guess in a way room to kind of think for yourself and not stay in a dogmatic position so there, we did a, a disservice to a lot of the young people that followed the uh, the Ron Paul movement, and uh, we have a lot to make up for it. And I think people like you and John uh, are doing that right now, is making up for that. Well, you're we welcome, and thank you for it. your encouraging words. So let's talk a little bit about some of your policies. I know we've been going on for a while about what direction the Libertarian Party should take, but... I think a lot of people want to hear some of your uh, what your platform is and some of your policies. And as I mentioned before we got on uh, the the recording, uh, one of my biggest, most passionate topics for me is uh, immigration. And right now, the immigration system sucks. It's convoluted. It's difficult, expensive. Uh, my spouse, my my wife, she's an immigrant from Mexico, and we're still struggling with it. She has her green card right now, but they only gave her a green card with a limited one. For We got one for three years, and they just extended it for uh, another year because we haven't proven – to them, we haven't proven that she's married to me because of oh, love. Oh, that's nice. And just for paperwork, <laughs> I guess. So – I don't know how they determined that. I mean, we sent uh, affidavits from loved ones and friends that are testifying that, you know, we're together because we want to be together. Uh, Our financial uh, documents and everything to show that we're a family. And for some reason, it wasn't enough. So it's getting more difficult. And basically, all it is is a money scheme because every time we have to send paperwork in, we're having to spend spend money on filing. Uh, So, and then, you know, if you don't have a lawyer, it's even more difficult. What is, as president, what will you do to simplify, if that's what you choose to do, to simplify? Well, definitely would want to simplify it in an extraordinary way, because as libertarians, we're very much proponents of the free movement of people. And we don't think that people should necessarily be uh, limited to a political boundary or border, you know, just as somebody should be able to freely traverse from Arizona to Utah, somebody should be able to freely move from Mexico to Arizona or vice versa. You know, there shouldn't be any constraints on that. And a lot of the constraints that we have are very punitive to people who are, are decent and good. Um, and it could really add to our culture and to our economy as well. So, the immigration topic is such a, an interesting one because like so many political concepts, it is so inextricably linked with multiple other variables. So in order to effectively deal with the immigration issue, you also have to extract out all the other arguments and issues that people have with it, paramount of which is unfortunately the conflation of immigration with abuses of welfare. 
Now, that's not necessarily the case. In fact, most people who are here illegally are using either, you know, like a false social security number or a false identification that precludes them from even taking out any sort of benefit outside of, say, you know, being able to drive on our roads or use a hospital or have their kids go to a public school, which are also forms of welfareism. But they don't get necessarily government aid in the traditional sense of what we think of with welfare because of the fact that they're trying to fly under the radar. They pay into a system. It's taken out of their paycheck on that fake social security number, but it's not necessarily coming back to them. So that's kind of a specious argument. But the best way to mitigate that one and address it, and it dovetails very nicely into our own beliefs as libertarians, is to get rid of welfare altogether. Public schools should be privatized. There shouldn't be public land that we should be worried about people trespassing on. It should all be private property. And, of course, it's up to private property owners to decide whether or not they want to allow somebody on their land or not. But as far as public land goes, we shouldn't have any overarching policy or belief about it. Additionally, our concern about, you know, cartels or drugs coming across the border or these unwashed masses, which ironically our Statue of Liberty says we're supposed to bring in, if I recall correctly, all of that comes down to the failure of the war on drugs. We've Mm -hmm. created the black market system because of the war on drugs. The cartels wouldn't even have the life or the concern it does for citizenry if we didn't have the war on drugs. So eliminate that. And furthermore, that issue about refugees coming from these shattered nations that adhere to ideas or beliefs that we don't agree with as Americans or that are on our watch list in this protracted war on terror, well, that all boils down to our crappy foreign policy approach governing the Middle East that came about during the Cold War. Had we not been meddling in those affairs, we wouldn't have created those unstable political regimes that manifested in all these refugees. So we wouldn't be sitting here going, oh my God, we can't let these people in because they come from scary countries. So a lot of that stuff is we created this situation and then we're effectively penalizing people because of it, which really makes me think of a quote by Sir Thomas More, which I can't articulate as well as he wrote it. But what it essentially says is what is to be concluded, but that you first create thieves and then punish them. That is what our immigration policy does. It penalizes people, good people, decent people who just want to come to a country that has an economic system that is freer than what they experience or has a culture that's more permissive or accepting or loving than what they've experienced. And they're being told, no, you can't because you're going to take away our jobs and you're going to take our benefits and you're making it harder for us to be. So, you know, Larry Sharp has talked about this before. And I think there's value in exploring the concept of reinstituting an Ellis Island type system. But the one thing that I always thought was really beneficial was fixing the system that we have governing sponsorship. Because we do offer sponsorship right now, but we make it incredibly difficult for families to be able to get approved to be sponsors and for people to come across. So rather than that, we should allow individual communities, you know, cities or states or municipalities, smaller groups of people sponsor as a community individual say, we're going to take them under our wing. We're going to care for them. We'll look out for them. We'll vouch for them. I think that that would be so much more effective. But I do agree with you that I think the system is designed, I mean, first of all, it forgets the fact that most of the people who are here, quote unquote, illegally overstayed visas, not that they came across the border. So that's a nonsensical argument. But I do think that basically the people who who try to do the right thing, 
They try to play by the system's rules. They get the immigration attorney. They pay out the nose for them. They do all the filings, just as your wife and you do. They're the ones that get caught in the crosshairs, not people that you are trying to prevent, legitimately prevent from getting here, such as terrorists, which I will remind you, came over here with visas. (laughs) So come on now. So uh, yeah, it's absolutely broken. And it's just, I think it's another example of the the political theater where they're essentially creating the modern day boogeyman. And this go, it's immigrants. And it's specifically targetedly Mexicans, which as somebody who lives at a border state is, forgive my French, bullshit. Right. No, absolutely. I've talked to Kevin Warmhold about here in San Diego, you know, the the whole mainstream media they're portraying this like massive like people jumping over borders and like people killing each other at the border is total bullshit we don't see that here in san diego at least i've heard it from other border states and other border no, cities where we don't see that here yeah i mean where are these like m- you know, mongrel hordes of news? people coming in i mean that's nonsense like i'm in for the phoenix metropolitan area but i've spent plenty of time in tucson and then even by bisbee which is eight minutes from the border and that's absurd. Anyone who's actually crossing the border has gone through an extraordinary amount of environmental hazards, has dealt with people who are exploitative, such as coyotes. And they're in the desert, which is a very hostile region, without water, without food, oftentimes on farmers' private property. And they're being hunted by ice in helicopters Mm -hmm. and on jeeps with guns it's terrifying my feeling is if you made it across all of that i think you should stay like my god (laughs) i think they did less traveling in lord of the rings right (laughs) yeah i mean yeah that's true it it lasted longer game of thrones (laughs) but no and it's just crazy to me like this idea that a lot of people and mostly it's funny because it's mostly on the on the right, you know, not liking to use labels, but on the right, they they have this uh, perspective that, you know, everybody that's crossing the border are these people that are just trying to violate the law, you know, to take advantage of our um, of our welfare system, of our take to take our jobs for cheaper, you know, and and I know a lot of immigrants and I know a lot of illegal immigrants here in San Diego, uh, just from talking to them, relating to them, working with them. And I don't know that many that work in jobs, one that work in jobs that any American really wants to do. And two, they're, they're actually, they earn their, their, their keep. They actually make, they'll ask for minimum wage. You know, nobody's here trying to undercut to steal anybody else's job. You know, if they go to work as a nanny, they will ask for me. Yeah, no, I think this actually is is very similar to that kind of argument with respect to political parties that we were kind of talking about earlier, which is this mentality that if a, a third option presents itself and a third option gets selected or gains traction, then people's automatic rebuttal is you took from, you stole votes from, as though those votes were already entitled. It's the same application in the concept about jobs. You're not obligated a job. You don't have a right to a job. 
You have a right to life, liberty, and justly acquired property. And if you have the necessary skill set or the willingness to perform certain job functions or the willingness to negotiate a reasonable wage with an employer, then you might get that job, but you're not entitled to a job. So that mentality that they took our jobs, I'm sorry, what job are you owed? That's not how that works. So if you want to be legitimately competitive, I mean, the best way to be legitimately competitive is to overhaul our immigration system, because then you don't get into a situation where you have employers potentially exploiting these individuals and paying them less than what's a reasonable wage based on market value. If you take out those constraints, then they don't have to fly under the radar. They don't have to settle for less and they can push for more and greater care and greater respect and responsibility. That makes them legitimately competitive. But again, that's not an issue with the individuals. That's an issue with government policy. It's so mind boggling. And I could have, I, was this way before becoming a libertarian as well. You know, I always thought, oh, what can the government do to make this better? And that's the mentality that most people have is what can I give the government? What powers can I give the government to try to make this situation better for me? Not realizing that every time they give more power to the government, (laughs) they're taking away their own power, you know, of the people because it is a government of the people by the people. And every time they give more power to resolve these little petty issues, they're taking away that power from the people. No, you're, you're, Oh no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that is exactly what happens (laughs) is that we have this self-perpetuating cycle, you know, this vicious cycle where we effectively say, I'm lacking in what I perceive to be my due. And we have a very convoluted concept of what we're actually due. So we think we're not getting what we're entitled to. So I'm going to go to government to redress my grievances, not against government, but against what I feel society somehow owes me. And then we're going to use the instrument of government, which is based on a monopoly of force, because every time they make a law, there's that threat of violence against you. Somebody's got to enforce it. There are penalties if you don't adhere. Right. So they create a situation where we make these laws to give people what they think they're entitled to and end up getting rid of the most precious aspects of our lives. The thing that we should hold above and beyond all else, which is our natural rights, something that should be inviolate, should be sacrosanct. We st- we give that up for the perception or the illusion of getting something we thought erroneously we were entitled to. So yeah, good job, guys. This is what we've, I mean, and I'll own my own end of it too. I wasn't always a libertarian. <laughs> I was a Republican before. I voted in elections for people who had policies that were totally out to lunch. I mean, my God, the first election I voted in was in 2000. And guess who I voted for president? It was Bush. And under him, we ended up with the USA Patriot Act and NSA warrantless wiretapping and the suspension of habeas corpus and Iraq and Afghanistan. Yay. And all that's done is create a much more hostile international climate. And it's harmed people. And for what value? For what For what gain? For the illusion of security? for the illusion that we're somehow doing better than we were yesterday, it's all smoke and mirrors. Exactly. So we kind of went off track. So back to the immigration. So 
I guess the solution to that would be to resolve these other issues. But not necessarily to do it in order, though. Like this is a there's some people who say I would be okay with open borders only if issues X, Y, Z were effectively addressed. And I feel like when it comes to a matter of pushing for our rights, it should be in no particular order. We shouldn't say if then this. We should say Across the board, all these things are issues, and all of these issues need to be dealt with at the same time. And, you know, we'll chip away at it, but we need to chip away at all of it at the same time. So that's going to be a lot of work for you during the president. Right. Which means my first policy is to legalize meth so I never sleep again. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, So I guess that would lead to uh, the drug war. So your platform or or your policy on that would be to end it. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that you may have observed, particularly if you watch the Democratic Democratic debates, is that it seems like a lot of people who are vying for the role of being president really do not understand what that role entails and what they can reasonably achieve in the constitutional constraints as outlined in Article 2, Section 2. They just seem to think that president is a king or a god and that he can do all the things. And so I look at it only from that small window of opportunity, which is strictly on the federal level, because the executive branch is responsible for enforcing legislation, not creating it, and only on the federal level. So from that perspective, with the war on drugs, what that would involve would be liberating all victim, basically anybody who that is in a federal penitentiary for victimless crimes. So if somebody was put in a federal penitentiary for producing or distributing or possessing narcotics, regardless of what type they were, but they didn't commit any other tangential crime like breaking and entering or rape or something else that's a definite non-starter for us as libertarians, they would automatically be pardoned. So there's that aspect there. The addendum to that would be dismantling things like the DEA and the ATF and all those little sub-agencies nested under the executive branch that are responsible for enforcing that because they don't have any constitutional basis. They don't have a right to exist there. So they should absolutely be gotten rid of. So those are those are the kinds of things that I am capable of doing is so far as on the state level, if they want to legalize or decriminalize, and that's incumbent upon people at the state level to push for that from their their governor or their legislature. Now, and you brought up a really good point of, as you said, a lot of people don't seem to know how our government really works. They think, you know, and this is even the voters. Anytime I talk about election cycle with um, your average voter, the only person they can think of is the presidency. And people don't understand that president is not the, the one that makes law. You know, they enforce it, but they don't draft these laws. They don't, you know, pass them into legislation. So, but with that, though, there has been a lot of things that presidents have done in the past few decades with executive orders where they treat it as a law. Right. And something that I've always imagined of having a good libertarian president doing would be to dismantle a lot of these unconstitutional executive orders. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There is there is sort of that initial kind of wouldn't it be nice if I could just make an executive order and wish it all away? 
Like that, there is, I mean, it's kind of a sweet little fantasy for sure. But realistically speaking, that's, that's not feasible. I mean, it's not like you're going to will the government away. And then people who've been in there since the Carter administration are going to be like, well, pack it up, guys. We had a good run. It's time to go home. Um, but absolutely, like at least if we, if we start with that baseline of those constitutional parameters and we say, cause you have to look at it from the perspective of you're applying for a job. I'm saying to the American people, I would like to be your representative at this level. And I understand the scope of that office and what it reasonably, what is lined out in our quote unquote company policy, our constitution of what that job entails. And that is what I'm going to willing to work within those parameters. I can do X, Y, Z above and beyond that. That's outside of my scope. And I'm not going to permit scope creep, which is what has been happening since basically the foundation of our nation. So there are, with executive orders, they were originally done to basically govern the inner workings of the executive branch. The first one was written by Washington, and what it essentially said was, I expect a report on from various members of my cabinet on the state of affairs in their respective department from time to time. Reasonable. That's a company memo. Right. It's an internal memo is what that is. The first one that's recorded on the register, of course, is the Emancipation Proclamation, which was issued by Lincoln during the Civil War. And that is one where it went outside of the scope of the office and decided to make these sweet, the sweeping proclamation that dictated the function of government altogether, even though it's subdivided into three separate branches that all have their own unique function. Right. So executive orders are treated nowadays as supplemental legislation and rather than what they should be. And when you get into a situation where the executive branch, which is responsible for enforcing legislation, is also defining legislation, you've vested way too much control in one entity. So absolutely, all those executive orders, it doesn't matter how nice the paper was or how beautiful the signature they have to go. We got to clean the mm-hmm. slate and those need to absolutely go. And we need to have somebody in office that says, I'm not going right. to do that. I won't do that. I won't do above and beyond this. Absolutely. And I think we need to start educating to the average voter how the inner workings of our government actually works. Right. Um, I just, it's for me, I feel so enlightened when I'm talking about, when I'm talking to somebody that don't know how the government works and they just say, Oh, well, the president's going to do this. The president will, you know, legalize uh, same-sex marriage, even though that's already now illegal. Did I say illegal or legal? Legal. Yeah. I mean, people just think of the president as this, as the the king, and we need to right. re-educate them. And I don't know what at what point that happened. I blame public schools. I don't know. That's interesting. That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it, but that would definitely be something to be worth looking into is when precisely did we get to that point? Because- you know, with respect to George Washington, he was a very reticent first president. And in fact, they did call him Cincinnatus <laughs> because much like the his namesake in that nickname, the Roman general Cincinnatus basically fought his campaign and then retired to the farm. And Washington wanted to go to Martha's Vineyard. He wanted to retire. He didn't want to. He did not want that role. Mm-hmm. And then since then, we've gotten in situations where people compete for it like they're 
like they're going to win an MMA championship or something as opposed to they're applying for a job and they're going to do their due diligence to represent the people's best interests based on the overarching philosophy that created the foundation of our country. So, yeah, I, I don't know if it was the advent of radio or the advent of TV. TV definitely put it into the elevation of celebrity. I mean, you consider that debate between Nixon and Kennedy, um, the first televised presidential debate. Nixon, if you listen to him on radio, largely would have been considered to have won it because he had much better arguments and points. Whereas Kennedy, because he was on TV and he you know, because of Addison's disease, looked so swarthy and tan. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked very, very healthy and young and virile and hailed from Camelot. <laughs> um, they, everybody thought he won just because he was aesthetically pleasing and thus began this sort of celebrity concept about the presidency. And ever since then, our, we've treated our presidents as something almost otherworldly, right. royal in a way. And it's disturbing. I mean, you listen to what people say about, you know, that's not very presidential or, you know, my president is this and they, they put him on a pedestal mm-hmm. and it's, that's totally unacceptable. You should never, ever, ever put another human being on a pedestal. You do a gross disservice to both you and them right. because that's a standard they can never achieve. And that's a power position they should never be in with you. Absolutely. It- you know, I think one of the first things that we need to get rid of is stop calling the president uh, the most powerful man in the world. I, I hear that. It, oh, that's just absurd. I know, right? <laughs> it's like and they say that every time, you know, oh, this person will become the most powerful person in the world. Uh, you know, what are you going to do when you become the most powerful man in the world? You know, it, it words kind of reeducate people. And I think of hearing that you know, so many times it just is what led people to believe. Do you ever think that like maybe the prime minister of Britain hears that and is just like, Oh, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> right. like, you know, like that's gotta be, that's gotta chafe if you're a, a, a world leader in another country to hear that nonsense because you're like, uh, not over my right. life, you know, exactly. not over here. You're not, I, you know, I do wonder because I mean, can, in a way it can create, enemies as well, right? Because it creates some sort of resentment towards the United States and towards that office. Yeah. You're the president of this country, not the the, the ruler of the world, not the grand poobah of the international community. And please stop functioning thusly right. because functioning under the auspices that you're somehow in charge of everything across the world is precisely where we got into a situation where we've become the world's police and have imperialistic tendencies and have, you know, 700 overseas bases and, or what is it, 800 overseas bases in 70 different countries. If we didn't think that we were responsible for managing all of it, we would have a lot less of a hostile international climate. So no, you aren't the most powerful person in the world, nor should you be. You should just be another human being who happens to be in this role. So I guess that leads to the next question would be, so... Why me? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That could be the last question. Uh, But as far as anytime I say that we need to pull our troops back, we need to get rid of these foreign bases, I get called anti-troop, anti-military. and You're against yourself? I know, right? (laughs) 
And <laughs> every day I look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just anti myself. Uh, you know, I'm in the reserves now, so I don't have to wear the uniform every day. But I was active duty for a very long time. Uh, I do have a certain amount of pride in that I have served. I don't necessarily agree with everything that the government or the military has done. I don't agree that we should have bases everywhere in the world. Um, we shouldn't be in these um, regime changes, fighting other people's battles. And because of that, I'm anti-military. I'm anti-troops. Well, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to just take that snip and broadcast it all over the world. Exactly. (laughs) Wouldn't it be me being more troop supporter that I want my brothers and sisters back at home safely, only doing the job that they swore to do, which is to protect, uh, defend and support the Constitution? You can't. Yes, I think so. So. Yeah, I I think that's like the, that's such an extraordinary lie that's perpetuated this myth that unless you are pro-imperialistic tendencies or pro the military industrial complex, you don't support the troops. I think that's nonsense. I think most people who are very vehemently anti-war don't do it because they hate soldiers or they hate the military or they're trying to harm. I think it's because they recognize that War is costly, both in terms of human capital, human capital and economic capital. It's destructive to life, limb and property. And it's something that we should absolutely be the most hesitant to ever do. You know, it's like Eisenhower said, which, you know, this is ironic, granted, um, because he did have advisors going into Vietnam and there was the Korean War, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just go with the quote, which was. Eisenhower said nobody avoids, I believe he was the one who said something to the effect of no one avoids war quite like someone who was in the military, mm-hmm. which is that when you recognize what exactly is involved and what exactly is at stake, which is people that you did basic with, people that you develop friendships and built a community with, because the military is very much a community of itself, even as somebody who was only married to it when I got divorced to my ex-husband, I felt that loss, you know, just because it is very community-based. So these are your brothers and sisters, your family, your friends. You develop those relationships and you do, you go into situations that are both galvanizing as people, but they're also incredibly destructive. And you don't want to replicate that. My grandfather was a paratrooper um, in the 187th Airborne during Korea. He did a little bit of World War II and then did the balance of his army career in Korea. So he did the jump in Mosan Ni. And years and years and years later, this is a story from my, my father, years and years and years later, my grandfather had wanted to get like a reunion of the guys in his unit. And he called one of the guys and the guy answered the phone and he's like, they're all dead. They're all dead and hung up like he did not uh, just the we shatter and destroy so many of our people by engaging in war and we have to stop. We have to stop. It should be the very last resort and only in terms of defense. And I don't think we could really reasonably argue that any war we fought in recent history qualifies as an act of self-defense. So, yes, I I think you're very pro-military, pro the troops by wanting to overhaul the VA and by wanting to end the wars and by wanting to draw back our relationship in other countries and pull those overseas spaces and 
focus on bringing our people back home. I think that's the most empathetic, humanistic thing you could possibly do. Right. And I think it's just finding the right words like you just did to kind of express that. Um, It's kind of, for me, I guess, I hold myself back as soon as I start expressing my views as far as what we should do as far as foreign policy when it comes to foreign wars, because it immediately it, it hurts somebody. A lot of these veterans who believe the same I do when you express it and they accuse you of being anti-troop and then you kind of back off a little bit, you know, you feel like, Oh, okay. Now I'm not going to say much anymore because if I say anything else, I'm going to, I I'm betraying my, my brother and sisters in, in, in uniform somehow. And just finding those words like you did is what helps. And I think would need to happen and having you as president would be awesome because then you would be able to do that at a, a lot louder voice per se. Yeah. From the Rose Garden. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. It, I'm excited to see a president someday just really like doing a, uh, a home makeover like they do in the, um, Oh, what's that show that they used to do? Celebrity. Um... Oh no. Like cribs or something. Yes. Or... yes. Oh, do a, a cribs show <laughs> on the white house. That would be so awesome. Uh, you know what? Maybe, you know, actually that wouldn't be a bad way to help pay down our national debt is exactly. to, I know we've talked about this sort of in, in different libertarian circles where we talk about selling off, you know, um, national parks or selling off national monuments so that we could recoup some of the money there um, and use it to pay off our $23 trillion national debt. Something else that you could do is absolutely be like, hey, uh, if MTV wants to do a Cribs episode in here, it's going to cost $50,000. I, I know it's a pittance, but it's a it's something. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Exactly. So, now, yeah, That would be pretty cool. What about selling the Air Force One? Like, oh, you know, it's and it's funny. I'm such a, a military aviation junkie. I'm like, wait, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, yeah. There's there's no rational reason. I think I would be perfectly fine taking Southwest. In fact, Southwest is what I fly. And Southwest, nice. if you want to give me an endorsement, I got your six. <laughs> <laughs> I like Southwest. Alaska and Southwest are my favorite. Not to endorse or promote anybody, but Southwest all the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, the reason I said about uh, selling Air Force One is because uh, uh, Andres Manuel, when he was running for president, he said that he would sell the presidential plane and try to sell it to Trump, which was funny. So, uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff that is in that collection of things that you know, whether it's the presidential limo or Air Force One or other assorted sundries and goods that are bestowed upon our representatives and our president. And a lot of it is just nonsense and it's costly. There's no, I understand the security concern in terms of wanting to make sure that the president doesn't get assassinated um, or doesn't put in a harm's way, but there's no rational reason why he can't use southwest airlines which now travels to no i'm just kidding I'm not gonna get an ad. <laughs> but 
but yeah, there's, there's no reason to do that. That's, right. that's ridiculous. And some of the stuff that, I mean, we had president Trump come visit here in, uh, in Phoenix. I think it was about two years ago. He came to, to do a speech and you could see at sky Harbor, they had flown in with, I think it was like a C five and it mm. had the presidential limo and some other crap in it, which as you know, a C five is huge. Right. Um, so we were all like, "Ooh, the C5, but that's absurd." Yes. Like, can you can you not take an Uber? <laughs> <laughs> you would make some guy's day. Like just take an Uber or rent a car. There's livery drivers. There's no reason for you to fly your vehicle here from DC just so you can drive to an event. That's right. ridiculous, particularly at a time where you're driving us into bankruptcy. Exactly. And I don't think all that stuff that they have, you know, the armored limo, the Air Force One doesn't do anything or protects the president any more than just having Secret Service, you know, the bodyguards and that's it. I don't know, I could be wrong. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. But if somebody's gonna try to assassinate the president, they'll they'll find a way, you know. Right. It's like a deterrent. It's like a lock on a door or an alarm system. If you're seriously hell bent on inflicting serious harm on somebody, you will find a way. Um, Those are just the illusion of security. Like, gosh, our government, I guess. (laughs) I think (laughs) about it. I'm like, speaking of false security. Absolutely. There was one more thing that I wanted to talk about. So, we normally, or I normally don't do this on my podcast. Normally, we just kind of stick with uh, all the political stuff. But I think it's fair to kind of lighten it up a little bit. So let's talk about Kim at a lot more personal level. What is your favorite rock band? And if I remember correctly, you are a rock fan. Uh, yes, yes. Um, goodness. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like the one time I stumble, I'm like, oh, I got to pick this one. Um, there are a couple of bands. I mean, I, I like a, a variety of music and it does rotate out, but there are a few bands that I default to a lot. Um, I love Incubus. I'm a huge fan of Incubus and Brandon Boyd's solo work. I love Muse, Foo Fighters. Um, there's a band that uh, called VAST, which stands for Visual Audio Sensory Theater. And one of the songs is just one guy, John Crosby, who played all the instruments and sang. And they cut, I think, four or five albums. And I'm actually friends with them on Facebook, which is so cool to me. Nice. <laughs> it's like my one fangirl moment. But <laughs> yeah, there's a there's quite a few bands that I really like. There's another band that I'm, I love called Big Wreck, which is they were in Massachusetts in the 90s. And they did a song called The Oaf, which got minimal airplay. But they're based out of Toronto, Canada, and their stuff is exceptional. Ian Thornley is their lead singer, and I really like them as well. So, and then Calexico. So I think those are the bands that I kind of Ooh, go. Calexico is good. You know Calexico? I love Calexico. <laughs> I oh, actually so stumbled good. upon them. Interesting. Amazon Music can be very funny, right? I'll put mm-hmm. like a band, uh, like the band Station, where they'll just mm-hmm. play and something that has nothing to do with it or is not even remotely close will pop up and Calexico popped up and I actually liked it. So. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Calexico, the way I found them, which you'd think I would have known them just by the fact that they hail from Tucson, um, (laughs) is that 
they one of their songs, Whipping the Horse's Eyes, which is just purely instrumental, is wow. used frequently on This American Life. And This American Life, which is a the show on NPR, and yes, I love NPR and This American Life. Um, they use a lot of just various artist music. And I was like, well, who does that song? It's really good. And that's how I kind of got into them. So nice. Yeah. What about you? What are your favorite bands? Oh, I am a big, big The Killers fan. I just, they're my go-to band. Whenever I get like bored with any other music that's going on, I'll just go to The Killers because I know they don't disappoint. I got to tell you a funny little story about The Killers. So have you ever watched the show Yo Gabba Gabba? Yes. Yes, I have two kids and my son was obsessed with Yo Gabba Gabba. Oh, I love Yo Gabba Gabba. It's so good. <laughs> so good. But yeah, one of their episodes, I think it was um it was about adventure was the name of the episode. Yes. And the the featured band was the killers, but they couldn't they didn't want to say the killers. So they're like introducing Ronnie, Ryan, whatever their names were. Right. And the song they did was called Spaceship Adventure. And it's so good. It it's was. only like two minutes long. Yes. Oh my God. It's actually on my playlist on Spotify. It's so good. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't even know it was on like Spotify. I wonder if it's on Amazon Music, but no, they're definitely my favorite band. I love Brandon Flowers. So I doubt that he's listening to his podcast, but if he is, you know, he needs to come on the podcast. It would make that'd be day. cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I we won't him. Talk you about, never know. Yeah. I, I've tried, but it's hard. I actually went. Okay, so this is creepy stalker moment. I actually went to his house once. Okay, I need more information. <laughs> right. So. Why? I, <laughs> well, I love the band, so I just really wanted to meet him. Funny story is uh, when I was stationed in Chicago or in Great Lakes uh, in the Navy, I uh, my neighbor was there. Um, studying at the university over there nearby for to be a, become a doctor. And he was from Las Vegas and he was his aunt. I think it was, was neighbors with Brandon flowers. So, and he was bragging about it one time. Cause we were having like this get together, a little barbecue or whatever. And uh, he was bragging about it. And I was like, Oh man. Like, and when he found out that I was getting stationed in San Diego and that I was driving through Las Vegas, he's like, I tell you what, I'll give you the address to my aunt and, you can go over there and try to see if you can get a get with Brandon Flowers. And I was like, yes, please. So, yeah, I went over there and I went to his house, but there was nobody home. So, Oh, how cute. So do you just do like a little <laughs> like, hi, neighbor. I just wanted to see how you're doing. And I got some of your mail. And by the way, can you sign this and this <laughs> and also this? <laughs> right. No, I got scared because I thought that somebody would call the cops on me. So, yeah. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I sometimes wonder about that. I, I do wonder because from time to time, you know, you'll have situations where you might serendipitously run into a celebrity. Like, for example, I think there was a time where I was getting on a plane and um, a basketball player whose name I can't even recall because I don't follow basketball hardly at all, not since like 1994. Um was on the same plane and everyone was kind of like, Ooh, but they didn't talk to him. They didn't approach him necessarily. So I wonder right. how often people actually get, you know, have p folks from the public come up to them and speak to them as opposed right. to what we think. Well, and you're not, you're not sure if it's them or not. Like you don't want to feel silly for mistakenly, you know, 
mistaken identity. Oh, man. I would just like to go up to a celebrity and just be like, you're so-and-so, like all accusatory, (laughs) like they committed a crime. (laughs) It's you. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That would be so awesome. Favorite libertarian book? Oh, um, hmm. Well, goodness. That's a very good question. I read I read a ton and I read a lot of nonfiction, but it isn't necessarily quote unquote libertarian. It's usually more just whatever subject based and sometimes it happens to be that the author is libertarian. So I'm actually going to I'm going to pick a, a really good book that I think libertarians should read, but they wouldn't necessarily do so because it's not necessarily classified as a libertarian book, which is the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Uh, Brian Stevenson is a founder of a really wonderful organization in, uh, I believe it's Alabama. And I can't think of what it's called right now. I'll have to look it up and you can put it in your show notes if you'd like. But the the organization basically fights to exonerate. It's very much like the the, um, oh my God, the Innocence Project. It's a lot like that. He fights to exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted, particularly minorities, as well as juvenile offenders, or not really there. So, um, and the book Just Mercy is about how he got involved in doing, I think it's the Equal Justice Initiative is what it's called, but how he got involved in coming out of law school, going into that career path and some of the cases that he tackled. Anyone who's interested even remotely in criminal justice reform should absolutely absolutely read Just Mercy. It's an amazing book. So I I know that's not a libertarian book per se, but it definitely appeal to libertarians. Okay, fair enough. Uh, in that case, I will go with Seven Habits of Highly Effective People then. <laughs> <laughs> By Stephen Covey? You hush. Yes. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh yeah, what's the other one? Um, what was the book that Manson used? It was a uh, How to Win Friends you... and Influence People by Dale yes. Carnegie. Yeah, there you go. There you <laughs> Which go. is basically like common sense stuff like ask them questions, use their name, seem right. interested in what they have to say. I'm like, that's basic human conversational. <laughs> like, but some it's folks... funny because a lot, I know a lot of people don't know how to have simple conversations. Yeah. Have you actually read the book? It's actually really interesting just based on the context and the time that it was written because he gives examples where you're like, well, President McKinley did this. And you're just like, man, that is not outside of reading about his assassination during the World's Fair. I can't think of many books that actually reference McKinley unless it's specifically about McKinley's entire presidency. So that's always kind of interesting. Yeah, I have not read the book, but now you got me intrigued. Yeah, you should. It's good. Definitely. All right. Well, this is probably the longest conversation we've had on Pace and Freedom. So congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, it's been an honor and such a privilege to have you. I've been uh, following your campaign. So I definitely am here to root for you, be your cheerleader and I am looking forward to the Libertarian Party convention in Texas to hear your name out as our nominee and have you as our president next. I am really excited about 
that as well. And for myriad reasons. I mean, like I said before, win, lose, or draw, I do think that we are experiencing a major sea change, both as a party and as a country. And I think that a lot of exciting things are on the horizon. And so I think it's going to be a really awesome time, um, not just in Austin, though it'll be wonderful to do the the big family reunion that is us. But um, it, I think it's going to be a lot of really cool things are going to happen in the next couple of months and going into our future. So thank you so much for having me on. Oh, go ahead and give a plug in for people to find you and ask you questions and donate. Okay. Well, thank you to everyone who has sat with us for the past one hour and 50 minutes and 26 seconds (laughs) to listen to our conversation. I really appreciate it. My name again is Kim Ruff and I am seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination for president in 2020, which will be at the National Convention in Austin, Texas in May. And um, if you want to find out more about me and my stances on issues, you can check us out at www.ruffphillips.com. 2020.com or you can find us on Facebook at Kim Ruff slash John Phillips for POTUS and V POTUS in 2020 as well as on a variety of other platforms including Twitter Instagram, Snapchat Pinterest, etc. So thank you so much for your time I appreciate it. No, thank you and remember to like and subscribe on youtube uh subscribe on apple Podcasts. we're on spotify stitcher and of course visit the website www.paceandfreedom.com where you can get all the podcasts and also get some pretty cool benefits if you become a pledge member like early access to this episode so that's all we got for tonight Have a good night.